0: Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is located in our church Bibles on page 972. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Eager to do. Please be seated.
1: As we uh, come to this reading and this uh, passage in Galatians, uh, I need to apologize to you for my voice. I have been stricken down by the British disease. I've already uh, talked to my compatriot, Eloise, about this this morning, so do pray for me that I will make it through without uh, descending into some coughing fit. Let's pray as um, we come to the Bible. Father, thank you for these words from the Psalms. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Father... We can see that that prayer has been answered abundantly in Jesus. You have dealt bountifully with us, that we might live and keep your word. You have come and made your home with us, you say, by your Spirit, through the work of Christ. Even the Father has come and made his home with us, that we might be new creations and live in a new way. So, Father, for ourselves this morning, we pray that we wouldn't simply be those who hear this word for those who see it and understand that it is your living communication to us and that you mean us to respond to it as any uh, reverberating tuning fork will expect its resonances. So, Father, we pray for us that we might be in tune with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So last weekend, uh, I arrived at the Stony Point Shopping Plaza, not far from here and the parking lot was filled with antique uh, American performance muscle cars. Maybe you've come across such a gathering before. Uh, Dodge Chargers, Chevy Camaros, Corvette Stingrays, Ford Mustangs from the 60s and 70s. And here were all of their owners standing proudly by around their gleaming, polished sports cars. And each of them, I noticed, had the hood of their car raised as if to say, isn't she a beauty? And anyone watching on what was a cold Saturday morning would probably be asking themselves, what is it that would motivate someone to gather with people who they presumably didn't know or didn't know well, to devote themselves on such a morning to come around these beloved monuments of automotive splendor? Well, of course, it's not just cars, is it? People get together for all kinds of things. We have a passion for something. We get together with others who do. People who have nothing else in common are drawn with a singular shared passion for whatever that one thing is. And I say that to pivot to our passage this morning, as Eloise has read it to us. In some ways, the church is like that. If you think about it, I mean, if you were to dare a peek at the person sitting just across from you, you would see someone who's come from a different family background, different job, maybe having a different skin color or different politics or different pastures or pronounces the word schedule in a different way. But we have a shared passion for one single thing that stands out as the devotion of our lives, the motivating joy of our lives. That's what brings us together. And understanding from Galatians that this is the way things go, it's not something that has come from us, right? We're not doing this because we just woke up one morning and said, oh, the best thing I could do is get out of bed on a Sunday morning and go gather with a bunch of church people. No, this passion we have, this joy has been given to us by an extraterrestrial, external, supernatural source. And it's not a vague, undefined liking for everything Jesus. It's a, an actual specific gift from God wrapped up in a specific me- message given by the Holy Spirit, engaging this passion to share it then with others. It connects us foundationally with all of those who have been given the same gift. So listen. If the Californian I met at O'Hare Airport a number of years ago, who knew the only thing he knew about me was I had a love for literature, he greeted me enthusiastically, like a long-lost brother, with two words: "Dude Beowulf.") <laughs> How much more then, can we connect with a friend like Oleg Demenci, that we met some of us last weekend from Moldova? because deeply we relate to him. We have not just a shared interest, but a new life and a new Lord that we rejoice in together. So that's the supernatural unity of the gospel. It's one gospel for us all, and that's what Paul is going to be speaking about here in Galatians 2. So we're continuing in Galatians. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Last week we saw how Paul explained the great arc of his journey, you remember? From a background in radical, fanatical Judaism to the sudden, life changing encounter of meeting the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then the witness of even his harshest critics who saw that transformation, glorified, they glorified God because of me, Paul writes. So, if you would look at this, this is on the reverse side of uh, the worship guide. You can also find it, of course in the Bible, perhaps in the church Bible in front of you, three focuses uh, this morning, three foci, I should say, in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Gospel movement, gospel meeting, and gospel math. So first, verses 1 through 2a, gospel movement, gospel movement. Paul, as you may have noticed, if you are familiar with uh, the book of Acts, or here even in this letter, he's always on the move. He's always going somewhere. There was an energy in this man that, despite his years, was unrivaled. And he's told us why. He says the source and the energy of the gospel in him hasn't been, we saw this last week, something that he has made up. He hasn't invented it. It hasn't come from his own brain or from his own energy, nor has he been given it by someone else. It doesn't simply been something that has been uh, explained to him by some other apostle or by some church tradition. No, his claim is this: is that God was moving him. God had moved him. God had met with him and was now motivating him. So in these verses, Paul explains what happened next. Chapter two, verse one. Then he says, after fourteen years, he means fourteen years since his conversion. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Now, here's the question. Why did Paul set out to go to Jerusalem at this specific moment to meet with these very same people that he has wanted to remain independent of? What is it that had caused him at this point to change tack, to change direction, to change response to these people he's tried to stay clear of. Well, verse 2, he tells us, he went up because of a revelation. We're not strangers, are we, to the word uh, revelation? Anytime you hit the news or open the newspaper, you will find the word revelation in there someday. And there's this uh, sense in the word revelation of an uncovering or an unveiling of something that has been previously secret or hidden, something you haven't been able to see which is now clear to you. It's been made plain. It's been revealed. In this context, it's pretty clear that Paul means what moved him to change his mind and to go up to Jerusalem was this revelation, something extraordinary to make him change his mind, something, again, external, something motivated by God not something that had just occurred to him to do because it seemed like the right idea at the time. A motivation from God, a revelation. Now, I don't think this means that all of Paul's revelations were along the lines of Acts 9, Damascus Damascus Road experiences. He actually comments on it later. Uh, You can see there in Acts 9 that... um, even Acts 9, even the, ex- the experience on the road to Damascus was unique. It wasn't going to be repeated again in the same way. But as you read Paul, as you read his accounts of his life and what he tells people to do, the word revelation keeps coming up again and again in various ways. We're tempted, I think, to, to make God unreal by turning everything into some supernatural, unrealistic idea of his communication. Now, that's not to say that that didn't happen. It did. Plainly, it did, particularly for the apostles who were in a particularly uh, unique position. But the Christian life for them wasn't like the end of the episode of of Mork and Mindy. You remember Mork and Mindy way back, where Robin Williams at the end of every episode would communicate with Orson from the planet Ork, and he would hear audible words to him of what he was to do or to think about. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't say that that was necessarily the typical way in which God would communicate, even with the apostles. As far as we can tell, revelations were diverse. They could come in any number of different ways, repeated impressions, powerful dreams, what you might encounter in worship. In fact, Paul has already told the Corinthians that they might expect in worship what he describes as revelations, not a a revealing of scripture again in a in a profound way, but, but some kind of insight from God in the light of Scripture. Or even the workaday things that apostles would do as they, they talked about things, or studied, or consulted over things, or preached, or prayed together. They would expect God to speak to them, what he calls a revelation. So various theories have been offered as to what this particular revelation was. Importantly, we're not told for sure. Some suggest that it was a private revelation to Paul, indicating to him from God that now was the time to go. And it is possible, we just, we just don't know whether that was the case or not, but it is one possibility. Others think it was a reference to the revelation given to the prophet Agabus in Acts 11 about the famine which was coming to Jerusalem. And we know that this would square with the very last verse in uh, this section. So Paul 9, in uh, verse 9, tells us that he has come because he's eager to give to the poor, right? which would account for why Barnabas and he have turned up, we're told in Acts, with money to relieve the famine in Jerusalem. Another possibility which I find appealing is that the revelation in question was the one given to Peter in Acts chapter 10. Again, not to Paul, but to Peter. You remember the repeated dream that Peter had on the rooftop in the city of, of Joppa, uh, of the non-kosher animals coming down, as it seemed, let down as a sheep from heaven. Peter says, and God told Peter, don't call unclean what I have made clean. These things are kosher. They are. I have made them clean for you. And at that moment, there was a knock at the door, you remember, and Peter goes and answers it. And there are three visitors there who want to take him to their Gentile master. And so he goes to the Roman centurion Cornelius, uh, who accepts Christ on the um, testimony of Paul, and he baptizes him. And Paul writes, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that Paul had heard that that had happened and that God is using this as a kind of opportune moment, a revelation to him that this was the time to go because now the apostles in Jerusalem are seeing it, that God has spoken not only to Peter, but to the whole church with this revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Nowadays, uh, Christians will disagree about the necessity of revelation, of communication from God. And again, we don't mean the unique one-time revelation of Scripture, particularly through the apostles in the New Testament. That isn't repeatable. But we're talking about the kind of communication from God which we're told we should expect. Speaking for Presbyterians, I'm conscious of our own intellectualized independence from the Holy Spirit. Speaking for myself, I know so much... And yet, to really my embarrassment, I am so weak in prayer. We are strong on doctrine. We're okay at preaching. We don't do so well at the spiritual disciplines. Perhaps of all Christian traditions, most impoverished spiritually because of our reliance on all that we know. And I think this is a word to us. We have such a rich heritage of biblical um, adherence and doctrinal richness drawn from Scripture. And yet, sometimes we expect so little from the author of those words to actually want to speak to us. I was watching a uh, favorite submarine wartime classic this week uh, with Clark Gable and uh, Burt Lancaster, Run Silent, Run Deep. Many of you will know it and treasure it as I do. Uh, The problem for us, I was thinking, is that we run silent, uh, but not very deep. It's actually quite shallow. (laughs) We're too busy, we're too distracted. You know, I was remembering the moment where Zach got out his phone a couple of weeks ago, you know, and said, this is now one of our big challenges. We are constantly distracted. We will not be at peace. We will not expect to hear from God, although we expect to hear from everybody else, so we're constantly looking at our phone. We don't take time to reflect, do we, on the kindness and the fatherhood of God that he wants to spend time with us and wants to have us spend time with him, to commune with him regularly and earnestly. And so I expect that... When we arrive, particularly to me, he might take me aside and say, why didn't you spend more time talking to me? Why didn't you spend more time listening? And I wonder if that's true for you too. But the great example of the apostle is that Paul knew. He listened to God. He listened for God, and he knew that it was God who was moving him. Second, gospel meeting. Verses 2b through 5, gospel meeting. Paul writes, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. What is Paul's attitude to Peter, James, and John? Well, he's not dismissive here, is he? He's certainly not disrespectful. It's interesting. He comes humbly and carefully in the way of Jesus. You may have asked yourself, why is this a private meeting? After all, isn't the gospel made known to the Gentiles and to the Jews something for everyone to know? Well, I think it's an indication that Paul understood the sensitivity of the situation that these three men faced. It may be at this point that they have heard from Peter what happened at Joppa, and they are still trying to process how they're going to tell their largely Jewish church that this is the case. That everything that Jews have thought is believed about Gentiles has now been contradicted by the gospel. So Paul is careful here, notice, understanding the sensitivity of this situation to make a kind of distinction. He has come, he says, before those who seemed influential. And he says that three times. He's treating the apostles in Jerusalem as brothers in the ministry. That's plainly why he has come to acknowledge that they share this deposit of the gospel in common, but he cannot and will not accede to the view of some there in the Judean church that there are two kinds of gospel, one administered by a higher order of apostles to the Jews and one administered by a lower order to the Gentiles. No, he's there to argue for one gospel for them all. What has brought him to Jerusalem, you'll notice, is not a desire for the Judean churches to leave him to his own devices. Rather, his is a call for cooperation, that they should all be preaching the same gospel. That's why he tells the Galatians he's come, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So yes, he could have remained in splendid isolation in Antioch, 450 miles to the north, but he comes carefully, sensitively, in the way of Christ, to bring them this message of his gospel. And he knows that two gospels would have been a disaster to the church. Things were going well, he tells us, verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek and thus plainly a Gentile. In other words, for Peter, James, and John, the moment that they let this Greek in and sat down with them, Paul knew that things were going his way. Why? Well, because Jews under the law wouldn't even sit down in the company of Gentiles. So something plainly had happened that they had agreed to meet with Titus present. Dogs, they would have called a Gentile like Thomas before. Sorry, like Titus. Unclean. But here, James, Peter, and John have welcomed him. And do you notice what Paul writes? He says, they saw that I had been entrusted, entrusted by God. They saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. They saw that God had entrusted me. The same God who's not two gods, he's not con- spreading confusion, the same God who is the author of the gospel has given the gospel to the uncircumcised. Wonderful words. They saw it. You can imagine Paul's relief as he understood that God had gone before him. Such is not true, however, he adds, for all of those that were there. This is where the course of the meeting could so easily have shifted. Verse 4, false brothers slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery again. What's so instructive about this urge to turn the gospel back towards slavery is that it comes again and again. You know, these were not the last people, right, or it's presumably not the last time that these, these false brothers were seen. After all, the situation in Galatia has been caused by people just like them, if not the very same people themselves. Because this tendency to come back again and again to the old way of making yourself right with God through religion or irreligion comes up again and again and again, as it does for you and me. The temptation always to go back to what we can make of the gospel, to what we can contribute, to what we can do to make ourselves right with God. The laws that we add, the things that we say people can't do, our ways of, of reducing The gospel to a set of laws, taking it from the relationship and the generosity of Christ. Paul won't have it. He won't back down. He knows what's at stake. Part of the way that God has moved him through this revelation is to see the stake of of what's happening here. He says, for you, Galatian believers, verse 5, we did not yield so that the truth of the gospel might be preached. Think about it. So much of the gospel is expressed in pronouns, isn't it? When you read the New Testament, one of my favorite moments, you have your own, no doubt, in John 20, where Jesus tells Mary, right after he has risen, he says to her, go to my brothers, my brothers, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, to my God, and your God. In a way that he could never have said that before, he now rejoices in the pronouns of the gospel in the way that we also can. And when Paul speaks to the Galatians, verse 4, of our freedom that we have, he is saying the same thing. That is the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus that puts us all on the same page with the God who loves us. So we come now not as... Sinners groveling miserably, hiding away in our corners and crevices, shamed of our sin. But we come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that God has saved us by this same gospel. I think we can say that, all told, this was likely a difficult meeting. The verbs here, as you read them, telegraph it, don't they? Whenever I hear the word submission, my mind always goes back to Saturday in the afternoons wasted in the 80s, Uh, watching WWE wrestling. (laughs) I tried not to dwell on it as the images became distracting as I was imagining the characters here in costume. But a submission, you remember, means you yield and a yield means you fall and a fall means you lose. We did not yield, Paul says, in submission for a moment, not a single moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel... The truth of the gospel might be preserved. The truth of the gospel which hasn't changed these millennia. The truth of the gospel which is not divided. It's one for all kinds of people. It's not one for those who will keep the law and for one for those who don't know it. One gospel through Christ for us all. Preserved, he says. Preserved for whom? For you, Paul says. And I find that deeply impressive. Paul, the former Pharisee, think about this, struggling in his hometown amongst his own people, some of whom hated him, some of whom thought he was desperately deceived, to preserve the gospel for Gentiles, for those people he had previously despised, because Christ had changed him. I wonder, how does someone do that? How does someone go into a place of risk Hold the line in the face of those who consider you either a murderer or a traitor and do those things not for yourself but for the sake of others, for these Galatians. And again, I think the answer lies, doesn't it, in Paul's autobiography. In your autobiography, it lies on the Damascus Road for Paul with the God that he encountered there and of the words that were spoken to him by Ananias, words of tremendous comfort, Brother Saul, God has no favorites, Paul was fond of saying. That's what he means here by saying those who were influential. There is no hierarchy in the Christian church. You know, there are many who have gone before us, heroes in the faith. Some of them have the name or the title saint before them, and I think we should honor them, many of them, for their martyrdom or for their way that they were faithful to Christ. But we should not think that they were somehow elevated. We are, all of us, made right only through the work of Jesus. And if Paul could see that Christ could work powerfully even through him in changing him, well, how is that also not the case then for that same God who has made his home with you? Tim Keller writes this, and uh, we're big fans of this commentary. If you haven't read it, it's the one that a lot of our community groups are using. This is what Tim Keller says, the Christian is assured of God's love and approval. God is pleased with us in Christ, so the Christian longs to obey God, not for himself so that God will save him, but out of gratitude to God, who he knows has already saved him. And so Paul lives as a servant of Christ. God's approval liberates us to live in a way which God approves of. The gospel is both a powerful assurance and a powerful motivation To live in radical obedience, in newness of life. So we have met with Christ. You have met with Christ, and you are His. He will not let you go as He would not let the apostle go. Because of that very thing, you can risk giving yourself away, as Paul did, for the sake of others, to love them in these kinds of. It's a private and functional agreement an agreement between the two poles of the church as they had been i love how the new english bible sums it up they accepted barnabas and myself as partners and shook hands upon it was this a meeting an agreement that god had moved paul to go to to defend the gospel in well, i think looking back we can say surely it was Surely this is the kind of agreement that would gladden God's heart. Surely this is why Paul had been asked, moved, commanded to go then to Jerusalem, to a place perhaps he didn't want to go. So in closing, I want to focus on a fragment of a verse, because the way it puts things, I think, is so clarifying for us. Verse 6, they added nothing to me. He means they added nothing to my gospel presentation. Here is the undeniable math of the gospel. You've heard it said, and I think it's well said Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And yet, the whole industry of the fallen human heart, being religious or irreligious, is to say, but I can give something, I can contribute, I can earn my own salvation, I can weave my own righteousness. To which I think we have to don't look at our own bankruptcy, don't we? To look at our own powerlessness. To say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You alone, Lord, are my salvation and my righteousness. All my problems come because I forget how loved and honored and secure and rich and embraced and free I am in Christ. My autobiography is probably a bit like yours. I had my share of religious phases trying to do good and my share of irreligious ones trying to feel good. But they are two sides of the same coin. So I want to suggest to you, you can drive your muscle car down Beaufort Road so people will look and admire you and it will feel great. Or you can drive it to take your elderly neighbor grocery shopping. But neither will take you where you need to go. You and I cannot be good enough. Christ is our peace. Christ is the good we are looking for. Every other treasure will either curse you or abandon you. And this is the apostles' report, isn't it? This is what the apostles saw. It was revealed to them. They saw that I'd been trusted, Paul says, with the gospel to the Gentiles. They saw the sufficiency of the cross, they added nothing to the gospel, and yet that gospel math, isn't this interesting, to which we contribute nothing, does nevertheless bear a product from us. Did you notice this? Paul says they didn't add any requirement, but notice they did make a request. Verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing, he says, I was eager to do. I think that's a striking response by Paul. It highlights the way in our own generation, the temptation for our comfort culture across the Western world has been to turn the gospel into some kind of stagnant reservoir which gives nothing out, or some self-justifying activity which brings nothing in. But Paul says, by contrast, this was the very thing I was already eager to do, And the word eager here in the original language means he was hastened to do it. He was motivated to do it. There was something in him that longed to do it. Why? Was it because it was an opportunity, somewhat cynically, to exploit the opportunity of the situation, the famine in Jerusalem, the wealthy Gentiles, the impoverished Jews? Is he using it as a kind of leverage to to benefit the Gentile church? I don't think so. Because he's made a similar comment in Second Corinthians 9, how all the grace abounds, he says, in every good work. And he talks then directly about the poor. You see, this too, I think, is the striking math of the gospel. We contribute nothing to it. We have gained everything from it. And in the process, God changes us at the level of, of heart motivation to, to have a heart like his, including towards the poor. I have this attachment on my leaf machine at home which changes it from a sucker to a blower. You got one of those? And crudely, that's what the gospel has done, right? It transforms us, evidently so, in our loving response to those who are like the poor, to the imprisoned, to the lonely, to the homeless, to the beggars, to the widows, to the orphans. Not to earn God's favor, but to show it. It's the overflow of the generosity of God's mercy and his gospel. So if there's any organ in society which should be giving to those people without cost, it is the church. The same church which glories in the gospel of Christ. So if you're feeling like you should do something, by all means, out of worship, find those good works which God has laid up for you to do in Christ Jesus. And I would say to you, you don't have to look far. If you're listening to the Holy Spirit, he will show you at the beginning of the day, if you say to him, Lord, show me one way in which I can glorify you today by loving someone else, he will show you it. And if you do it, then you will find that it becomes something of a habit, and he will do it again. And here we've got plenty of things looking for volunteers, from food pantry to homework helpers to giving generously to our deacons to uh, mercy, to do works of mercy, or in our lay counseling ministry. A lot of people that we serve through lay counseling don't know the Lord, but we want to give them free counseling. But in all these things, when we give, we're doing so because Christ is rich and we are poor, because he is full and we are empty, because he is generous. And we have been given the unique joy of sharing in the generosity of his gospel. God's gospel to us. Absolutely astonishing. Absolutely life-changing for us and for others. In Christ's name, amen. Father, we thank you for your Awesome generosity to us. It's such an overused word and yet not misplaced when it comes to the good news of Jesus. And one day, Lord, we will see it in all of its splendor and its glory. But Lord, help us to expect to hear from you the God who has shown us and communicated to us such love in Christ Jesus personally, not just conceptually, practically. Lord, help us to ask also, how can we share that same gospel generosity with others to the glory of your name? In Christ's name, amen.